Hey everyone, I'm Dominique. And I'm Heidi. Welcome to More Grats. We're glad you decided to waste some time with us. Hey, we want to say thanks to Regina who sent us a Facebook message. Uh, one of our episodes reminded her of a personal story of hers and she shared it with us and it was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing and we're glad that you um, are listening to the podcast. Yeah. And speaking of that, just to let you all know, we we are going to take next week off for the holiday. So hope you spend it with your family or people you love. <laughs> one in the same that's all the better right yes that is our case yes so enjoy your holidays yes enjoy your holiday uh before we start we want to remind you we are talking about death if you are easily offended by rude humor or foul language or are particularly sensitive to discussions about death you may want to pass on this podcast we are wildly inappropriate at times but that comes directly from growing up in a funeral home the way we insulate ourselves is by humor and for us it's a lot better to laugh even when you feel like crying. So Heidi, the holidays are upon us and that means a lot of things are happening. Right, like family gatherings, office parties, too much food, arguments, and uncomfortable situations. (laughs) Well, usually the holidays are a happy time where we gather with the people we love the most. However, aside from those occasional arguments or uncomfortable situations, there's a lot of something else going on during the holiday season. There is alcohol consumption. There are so many wonderful concoctions out there during Christmas. Mold wine, hot buttered rum, hot cocoa with peppermint schnapps, and of course, champagne. When you're in a festive spirit, it's so easy to indulge in a few too many. And some people drink to cope with the stress the season can bring. But we all know that it's never a good idea to get behind the wheel when you've had some drinks. Today, we are going to talk about deaths caused by drunk drivers. And our funeral home story tells of the time the undertaker had a little too much and paid for it. This episode will have child deaths, so if that makes you uncomfortable, please skip. As always, listener discretion is advised. That said, welcome to episode 32. Driving and drinking? What were you thinking? Or more appropriately... Don't Don't drink drink and drive, drive, fucktard. (laughs) You know, most people say drinking and driving, but that just didn't rhyme. So, and we're poets. We're poets. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta rhyme. That work. Gotta rhyme. (laughs) Well, first of all, this is not going to be a rant telling people not to drink. Hell, drink up if you want. Yeah, go ahead and get shit faced. We're We're not not fucking judging. judging. But this is going to be a rundown of some pretty awful accidents which show the devastating consequences of drunk driving. Most of us have been there. You have a couple of drinks, you're feeling really good. You're getting more beautiful or more handsome by the minute and your dance moves are smoking. But it's time to go home. Since you're all full of liquid confidence, you say, I can totally drive, no problem. (laughs) Well, there is a problem. You are most likely breaking the law, but worse, taking a serious risk with your life and those lives of completely innocent people. Let's start with a crash. It's hard to call any of these accidents. Right. That happened on May 5th, 2008 in Las Vegas, Nevada. 19-year-old Ronald Jane Jr. was at a party, but he decided he needed, say it with me, cigarettes. cigarettes. So he foolishly got behind the wheel of his, say it with me, 
pickup truck <laughs> and headed out. Jane was driving 80 miles per hour in a 35 mile per hour zone when he blasted through a four-way stop intersection and collided with a Mercedes SUV. The Mercedes burst into flames when uh, on impact, it ruptured the fuel tank. Though Jane survived the crash almost unscathed, the family in the Mercedes was not so lucky. As shocked witnesses tried to pull victims from the mangled flaming metal, Jane calmly walked to the side of the road, sat on the curb, lit a cigarette, and said, well, I guess I'm in trouble now. His blood alcohol level was over twice the legal limit. Killed in the crash was 32-year-old Claudia Dominguez, 13-year-old Gustavo Dominguez, 9-year-old Fernando Santa Cruz, and 2-year-old Anna Iteslik Miranda, and 7-month-old Catherine Luna. (sighs) Three other people were critically injured. Gustavo, the 13-year-old, was supposed to go to Disneyland with his school band that very week. A few days after the crash, two of the rescuers went back to the scene. They placed crosses by the site, but others had already been there and left some items. Among the stuffed animals was a piece of the charred Mercedes and, this is heartbreaking, a burned and partially melted bag of diapers. I know. Jane was sentenced to 15 to 45 years in prison, but the victim's families wanted him to receive life in order to send a clear message about the consequences of drinking and driving. One family member addressed Ronald Jane Jr. at the sentencing and told him, you ruined our family. An officer who was at the scene said, this is the worst of the worst. This is no accident. It was entirely preventable. Well, here's our next reminder not to drink and drive. This happened on May 14, 1988 in Carroll County, Kentucky, and has been called the deadliest drunken driving accident in U.S. history. A church bus filled with children and adult chaperones left the Assembly of God Church in Radcliffe, Kentucky early one morning. They were off to have a great day at Kings Island Theme Park about 170 miles away in Ohio. The group had a blast at the park, and when it was time to go home, all 66 passengers and the driver climbed on, excited from their fun-filled time. On their way home, the driver stopped to fill up the 60-gallon tank with gasoline before continuing home. It was nearly 11 p.m. when the crash happened. Larry Mahoney, who was intoxicated, was driving the wrong way on the freeway and slammed into the bus. Mahoney later admitted he was drinking at a friend's house and at a bar. Police also found a 12-pack of beer in his vehicle, which was still cold and had a few cans missing. So one can surmise that he wasn't just drinking and driving, he was drinking while driving. Anyway, neither of the drivers of the vehicles nor any of the passengers on the bus got seriously hurt in the collision. It's what happened next that killed 27 people and injured 34. In the crash, part of the bus peeled back and this part punctured the fuel tank. Within minutes, the bus was a blazing inferno. The bus driver tried to put out the fire with a small extinguisher and he directed the kids to the back emergency exit because it was the only way out. Of course, all hell broke loose. The bus had been filled to capacity and there was a mad rush down the 12 inch wide center aisle to get to the back. A large cooler had shifted into the aisle, making passage much more difficult. 
Children panicked and screamed, but the fire became too intense to outrun. The victims, mostly children, aged 10 to 19, all died from smoke and fire. Larry Mahoney had no memory of the crash and only learned of what he'd done when he woke up in the hospital. At first, prosecutors planned on seeking capital murder charges, but decided against it. Instead, Mahoney ended up sentenced to 16 years in prison. While in prison, he was a model prisoner and worked as a clerk, attended Alcoholics Anonymous, and earned his GED. Apparently, he thought he deserved this punishment and perhaps more because Mahoney declined the parole board's recommendation for release and served his entire term. He has since lived a quiet, somewhat reclusive life, hopefully as a sober man. Now, that was in 1988. The courts have less tolerance for drunk drivers nowadays, and 24-year-old Michael Gagnon found this out when he was sentenced to 43 years in prison for killing five people in December of 2007. Gagnon had been at a holiday party with family and friends, and arrangements had been made so he did not have to drive anywhere that night. Three hotel rooms were booked for the Gagnon family, and there was also a backup plan, a designated driver. Who knows why and how Michael slipped through all these safeguards and behind the wheel of his, say it with me, pickup pick truck, but he did. Gagnon went through a drive-thru at, say it with me, Taco Bell. And he was drunk enough there that the manager of Taco Bell called the police to let them know about a drunk driver on the road. Gagnon got to the freeway before the police could find him and he was driving the wrong way. Eight members of the Griffin family were traveling back home from Mar- to Maryland after a holiday visit with relatives in Michigan. Danny Griffin, the driver and husband and father of the family, saw Gagnon coming, but it was too late. Both vehicles swerved to avoid each other, but the heavy pickup hit the passenger side of Griffin's van, ripping doors off and throwing some of the occupants from the vehicle. Amongst the toys, luggage, and torn wrapping paper strewn across the side of the accident, an infant seat covered in pink blankets also landed in the middle of the road. Oh my God. Of the passengers in the van, five were killed. Two were left in serious condition, and one was in critical condition. At the scene, Gagnon's eyes were glassy and his speech was slurred. When his blood alcohol level was tested, it turned out it was over three times the legal limit. Tragically, this wreck took the lives of Bethany Griffin, 36, Jordan Griffin, 10, Haley Berkman, 10, Lacey Berkman, 7, and Beatty Griffin, only eight weeks old. The accident forever altered the lives of Danny Griffin and the two children, Sydney and Bo, both eight at the time. Okay, so this next one is tragic and strange with possibly a little bit of divine intervention. Near Alvin, Texas in December of 2012, David Barajas was driving with his wife and four children. They were only about 100 yards from their home when their vehicle ran out of gas. While David steered the disabled car, his older sons, David Jr., who was 12, and Caleb, who was 11, started pushing the pickup. It was dark and this was along a country road. All of a sudden, 20-year-old Jose Banda crashed into the pickup, hitting David Jr. and Caleb. What happened next is up for debate. Some witnesses say they saw the father, David Barajas, leave the scene, then return, hiding something, and approach Banda's vehicle. On a call to 911, one witness can be heard yelling, there's a guy shooting people, and 
Jose Banda ended up slumped over his front seats with a bullet in his brain. Some people say David Barajas executed Jose Banda in cold blood after the crash, while others say the distraught father never left the sides of his mortally wounded sons. What's more, there was no gunshot residue on Barajas' hands and when tested shortly after the accident, and a weapon was never found. Banda's blood alcohol level was over twice the legal limit when he plowed into David Jr. and Caleb. One of their bodies was described as being in half. A jury acquitted David Barajas of murdering Jose Banda, and though Banda may not have deserved a public execution, some would say justice was served. Here's another reminder not to drink and drive. A dad, a mom, and their two young boys burned in their fiery car after a 20-year-old driver who was driving with a blood alcohol level over three times the legal limit rear-ended them at an intersection, causing their SUV's fuel tank to explode. The driver, Stephen Boyce, had been at an all-day party the day before. Since the other party-goers were underage, like Boyce, they wouldn't confirm if there was any alcohol at the party. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, right. right. Uh-huh. <laughs> no one knew where Boyce had spent the night, or at least no one was talking if they did know. But nevertheless, Stephen Boyce awoke the next morning, possibly still drunk from the day before, and chose to get behind the wheel of his, say it with me, pickup truck. He stopped at a store to buy, again, say it with me, cigarettes, then hit the road for home. Meanwhile, the Rowe family, Mark, Amanda, Caleb, and Tyler, were on their way to Mark's mother's house for a cookout. It was probably like any lazy Sunday like so many of us have experienced, hanging out with family, enjoying some food. Well, that never happened for the Rose. Well, at least it wasn't the barbecue they expected. <laughs> When the cops got to the scene, the vehicle was engulfed and Stephen Boyce, who was not seriously injured, exhibited the characteristics of driving under the influence. Cops also found beer and an open bottle of rum in his car. Boyce was sentenced to 20 years in prison, a small consolation for an entire family being wiped out. For our last reminder that driving under the influence is a fucktard thing to do, we go to Slaughter, Louisiana, May 30th, 2012. Seven people were driving home from a Bible study. Brenda Gaines drove with her daughter, Denise Gaines, and with, with them were Denise's children, Diamond, age 12, Jiren, age 6, Willie, age 15, and Roderick, age 13. Riding along was another church member and friend, Angela Mosley. Unfortunately, Brett Gerald was also on the road after celebrating his 30th birthday. Gerald had three other DUI arrests prior to this fatal accident, but only one conviction resulting in 48 hours of jail time. Why this guy was allowed back on the road is beyond me. Anyway, Gerald hit the car carrying the Gaines family head on. Brenda, Denise, Diamond, Jiren, and Angela all died instantly. Willie and Roderick were kept alive on life support, but when it was evident there was no hope for recovery, they were unhooked and subsequently passed away. Willie was the first to be disconnected from life support and died on June 3rd. His organs were donated to save other people's lives. Roderick died a couple days later after being removed from life support. Brett Gerald must serve 35 years in prison before he is eligible for parole. So people die. It's just a fact. But when someone dies in a way that's so preventable, it's hard not to get angry. All of these victims, 50 killed and 40 injured, 
just in these six accounts were doing nothing but going about their day, traveling home after visiting with relatives or a fun day at amusement park, heading out to grandma's for a picnic, coming home from Bible study, things we do every day and think nothing about. Please everyone, it's so easy to call for a ride. And if you're in a situation where you will be embarrassed by being drunk, say maybe you're underage or it's not befitting of your perceived status, it's a lot better to face the consequences of your parents, your spouse, or your peers than the long arm of the law. People will forget that time you had to call for a ride home, but everyone will remember if you killed someone. Before you go out and party, make a plan. If plans fall through, find another way. There is always another way. This is kind of reminding me of our funeral home story. Are you ready for it? <laughs> you know I am. <laughs> but wait before you start. <laughs> Do you know what dad told me yesterday? What? He said last week he was in a drunken stupor and ingested 45 Viagra pills. What? I know. He said not to worry. He was okay now. However, mom took it pretty hard. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Go dad. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, well, um, speaking of dad, here we go. The undertaker stood there in the dark, surrounded by a mist so heavy, it's like he'd wrapped up in a wet towel. Red and blue swirling lights made his eyeballs pulse, each flash adding to the bomb in his head, waiting to explode into the worst headache ever. His friend Harry stood a few yards away, wringing his hands. The undertaker could barely look at him. I'm sorry, said Harry. Really, I'm so sorry. The undertaker gave Harry a disappointed frown, then looked back to the gravel shoulder, trying to avoid those flashing lights. It all started with one of those stupid meetings. Some years back, Harry got it into his head that all the area funeral directors should get together every few months. This wasn't as easy as one would think, since the four funeral directors all lived in different towns many miles apart. The meetings took some planning, but Harry was a planner. Therefore, twice, twice every year, Harry booked reservations at a restaurant in Jonesville, a town central to them all, so no one had to travel farther than the other. The purpose of these meetings was to relax and have dinner, talk about the trade, vent about the business, kind of like a support group for funeral directors. But the undertaker knew what Harry was up to. He didn't care one lick about his colleagues' emotional well-being. These gatherings were a way for Harry to find out how much business the others were getting and if they happened to be getting any from Harry's area. But the undertaker liked Harry. He liked Tom and Dick, the other funeral directors as well. And there was no harm in getting together once in a while. The undertaker just decided to keep his business his own business. Harry could pry and pry, but the undertaker's pat answer was always, I'm doing okay this year. For this particular meeting, Harry had offered to drive. I'll come pick you up. You drove last time, so it's my turn to be the designated driver. That sounded great to the undertaker. He didn't often get to tie one on with friends, so having a DD was like a free pass to Buzzland. Tom didn't drink alcohol at all, so no one group worried about him driving home. Dick loved his booze, but always arranged for a ride home, so no worries there either. The Undertaker and Harry always carpooled since they lived closest to each other, but they both liked to drink, so they alternated between who could and who couldn't imbibe. It seemed like a good plan, and it worked. Until tonight. The Undertaker had mixed himself a martini at home before Harry arrived. 
get a little loosened up and not have to pay the restaurant for it, was his logic. The drink went down smooth and the undertaker looked forward to the next, even if it cost him 10 bucks. When the four funeral directors gathered at their table, the undertaker ordered that next martini and was surprised to see Harry ordering a cocktail as well. Harry noticed the undertaker's expression and said, Just one, and it will wear off well before we leave. The undertaker trusted his friend and let it go. One drink wouldn't affect Harry, especially once he'd been sitting for a couple of hours and had a steak in his stomach. So the undertaker ordered a glass of wine with his dinner and didn't pay too much attention when Harry got up from the table several times throughout the evening. Maybe his prostate was acting up. Harry was getting to that age. But as the dinner came to a close and the undertaker felt that very lovely swimminess in his head, it became clear that Harry had not been getting up to go to the restroom. The bill for their dinner and drinks showed he had gone to the bar for three shots of tequila. You're supposed to be driving, the undertaker gasped. Harry tried to laugh it off. I am driving. I'm fine. I don't even feel buzzed. The hell you're going to drive? You had a mixed drink and three shots of tequila. The undertaker jabbed a finger at the bill to prove his point. Come on, slurred Harry. I'll have some coffee. It'll be fine. The undertaker fumed. He took inventory of his own alcohol consumption and his own faculties. I had a drink before Harry picked me up. Then there was the 25 minute drive here. Then a martini right before dinner, then a glass of wine while I ate. And it wasn't a huge glass, a restaurant pour. That's not like a glass at home. The undertaker excused himself from the table and stalked to the restroom. Even though he didn't feel the urge, he forced himself to pee to get the alcohol out. Then he stood at the sink and splashed cold water on his face. He looked at his reflection and thought, I'm okay, maybe not perfectly okay, but way better than Harry. He shook his head and said to the mirror, Harry, you're an asshole. Everything would have been fine. The undertaker felt alert. His reactions were good, no weaving on the highway. They were almost in the clear, but then... Pull over! yelled Harry. At that off-ramp! Pull over! The undertaker was so startled by his friend's outburst that he slowed, turned on his blinker, and crept to the shoulder of the road well off the highway. Harry jumped out of the car before the undertaker could ask what was wrong and heard... Ah! And the splatter with such velocity it sounded like someone was spraying mud off their driveway. You can't pee right there! shouted the undertaker. Harry turned his head, stumbling in the process. I really had to go. And now here they were with red and blue flashing lights illuminating the sky and rubberneckers wondering what was going on as they drove on past. The undertaker blew a .09, just a smidge over the legal limit. As the stater put handcuffs around his wrists and guided him into the backseat of the squad car, the undertaker heard Harry yell, Don't waste your phone call. I'll call your wife. Shit, thought the undertaker. I am in so much trouble. It had been two weeks and the undertaker was still in trouble. His wife bailed him out of jail that night, but jail was just the beginning of his worries. The judge took away the undertaker's license for three months and he had to go to diversion classes once a week. This posed quite a problem for the undertaker. He may have lost his legal ability to drive, but that didn't mean people stopped dying. For three months, the undertaker's wife would have to chauffeur him to death calls 24-7. And she would have to drive him to diversion classes, which were in a completely different town, Harry's town. Don't think Harry didn't hear it from the undertaker's wife. 
She railed into him that night her husband went to jail for a DUI he never would have gotten had Harry kept his end of the deal. Not only did he get that initial tongue lashing, but every time the undertaker's wife had to wake up in the middle of the night to drive her husband to a death call, she made sure to call Harry and wake him up too. On the day of his first diversion class, the undertaker felt nervous. He didn't know what to expect, and he especially hoped he didn't know anyone there, for both their sakes. The shame of having his license stripped and having to take alcohol awareness courses, all because of something that could have been avoided with one phone call, draped over the undertaker like a filthy shroud. Everywhere he went, he was sure people were looking at him, pointing fingers and laughing. The undertaker got a DUI. How embarrassing. At least he didn't hurt anyone, or worse, the undertaker shuddered and couldn't believe he had been so stupid. It didn't help that his wife was mad at him because they had two death calls during the night. I'm sorry, the undertaker said as they sat drinking their morning coffee two hours earlier than normal because it seemed fruitless to try and get some sleep now. He'd apologized a million times since that night. Well, at least this day can't get any shittier. She stared at him over her steaming mug. Don't bet on that. You still have your drunk class tonight. And now the time had come. The undertaker's wife pulled off a busy street in Harry's town up to a row of businesses and put the car in park but left the engine running. Go in that door. I'll come pick you up in an hour. He nodded and stepped onto the sidewalk. He waved goodbye, but his wife was already pulling back out into traffic, off to waste an hour at Walmart. The undertaker squared his shoulders and strode to the glass door in front of a cedar shake building sandwiched between a flower shop and a barbecue restaurant. He pushed it open and entered into a small lobby with a short hallway in front of him, doors on either side. Taking a deep breath, the undertaker turned to his left and pushed open another door. Three women sat behind a counter, busy on their computers. With his head hanging low, he walked up to the counter and waited for one of them to acknowledge him. When none of them did, he cleared his throat and said, Hello, I'm the undertaker. I'm here for those drunk classes. I mean, diversion. The women glanced at each other, but no one made a move to help. So the undertaker repeated, I'm here for those diversion classes. The women looked at each other again, and finally, a young brunette with bright blue eyes responded. I'm sorry, Mr. Undertaker, but this is the cable company. You want to go down the hall to the right. The undertaker bit his lip, thanked the young woman, and left. As he walked down the hall and to the right, he said under his breath, Okay, now this day can't get any shittier. Luckily, the undertaker did not know a single soul in his class. He listened as the instructor talked about the evils of drinking and driving. The undertaker appreciated that they didn't have to go around the room and say their names. This wasn't Alcoholics Anonymous, after all, although he figured that was the next step if he didn't pass this class. Finally, class dismissed, and he walked through the hall, thankful the cable company had the lights off and the women had apparently gone home. God, how embarrassing. He hurried for the glass door, but a sign with curly cue writing saying, free candies, caught his attention. He reached into the bowl and grabbed a few of the bright, individually wrapped treats, then stuffed them into his pocket. Outside, the evening had grown orange, and he scanned the cars parked along the sidewalk, looking for his wife. Not here yet. The undertaker took a red candy from his pocket and ripped the packaging open with his teeth. He squeezed it directly from the plastic and into his mouth, hoping it was cherry, not watermelon. He sucked, then immediately spit it out into his palm, contemplating the round red disc. 
The undertaker narrowed his eyes, then turned around and pushed back through the door for a better look at the bowl of candies. He squinted carefully at that curly Q script. Free condoms. Fucking great. He just sucked a rubber. He barged back through the door and onto the side. <laughs> <laughs> Marched back through the door and onto the sidewalk, wiping his lips and trying to spit the taste of lubricant out of his mouth. He cursed Harry for the thousandth time and started to say, this day couldn't get any shittier, but he'd said that twice already and he wasn't in the mood to get proven wrong again. dad always told us to take the road less traveled uh-huh. well yeah. i always thought he was giving us life advice but maybe he was giving us drunk driving advice so i wish i wish i could have been a fly on the wall oh my god <laughs> well that's gonna do it for this episode thanks for listening we really appreciate it remember be kind any day above ground is a good one and finally keep, keep on breathing, breathing.